It's a special thing we get to do when we're gathered together as God's people, isn't it? Like there's nothing like super special about the activities we do. We sing songs. We eat a simple bread and cup. We open up this book of the Bible and we teach from it. We have a chance to get to pray for one another and encourage one another. And yet there's something in that, in the way that we gather together and do these things together that God uses to form us, to shape us. I feel like every time I take communion, there's this, I'm struck by two, two thoughts. On the one hand, how simple it is, especially in the little prepackaged thing like that, right? And yet how solemn and, and significant it is. This is one of those things Jesus says to do this regularly as often as we do it in remembrance of him. It, it builds a pattern, a rhythm in the same way that I've worn this ring for, oh shoot, I should have thought about the number before I said this. 16 years, right babe? 16 years. And each time I look at it, it's a remembrance. That's right. My wife, Jennifer and I, we've been bound to each other for the last 16, almost 17 years in January. But in the same way, that simple bread and cup, think about that. Maybe you've been walking with the Lord for a long time. How many years you've regularly taken that bread and cup? Is that that regular pledge of allegiance? That's right. Yet not I, but Christ in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself up for me, Paul says in the book of Galatians. When we gather together to do these corporate practices it is significant, and I'm so glad that you're here with us. Um, if you were out of town last week for Labor Day, welcome back. Uh, we, we ordered some cooler weather for you, um, uh, to, to, a little bit wet too, but um, we are so glad to have you with us. Last Sunday, uh, we got to kick off our new series, and I forgot the clicker again, I swear. I do that just about every time. Talk about simple practices that help when God's people are gathered together. That's one of them. Um, we, we started a new series. We're going to be going through the book of Matthew. Basically, for the next year plus, we'll be working our way through this gospel of Matthew. If you were with us over the summer, you know we spent a good chunk of time, uh, nine weeks of the summer, looking at the very end of Matthew's gospel, looking at the Great Commission in, in Matthew chapter 28. Um, and we spent a lot of time there because it's kind of the grand finale where, where Jesus, after his death and resurrection, gathers his disciples together. They come to him on the mountain where Jesus directed them. And he says to them that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And therefore, these men that he first called and said, come, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. He looks at them now and he says, it's time to go. Therefore, as you go, make disciples. The same hands-on personal process that I took you through. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We've got two people who we're going to get to see go through the waters of baptism at the end of our service today, which is awesome. And then with that also, this idea of teaching those how to keep, to observe and practice and pass on all that Jesus has commanded us. And we undertake this global mission of local discipleship, trusting in Jesus' words that he's with us always at the end of the age. We talked throughout the summer how these words at the end of Matthew's gospel are an invitation and even a summons to look at the entire book of Matthew in light of this idea of discipleship. That Matthew wrote his book not only to give us a faithful account of Jesus' words and ministry, but he wrote it as like a, a manual of discipleship. A means through which we can observe the way that Jesus made disciples so that we can put this into practice and pass it on to others. That's what we mean by that title that we're using for this series. Apprenticing with Jesus. 
walking with him so we can learn from him who he is and what he did so that we can follow in his footsteps. Last Sunday, we took uh, the majority of our service just to read through the first four chapters of Matthew. Because we saw, like what Paul says in 1 Timothy, that the public reading of scripture is an important thing that God's people are called to do when we're together. And now what we're going to do starting today is we're going to begin to teach and and exhort through those same four chapters that we read through. My main purpose this morning is really just to kind of set the table for where we're going to go as we make our way through the book of Matthew. Uh, A couple weeks ago, remember Todd, he had his big backpack up here with really cool gear and stuff. Um, And he talked about how what Jesus does along the way with his disciples is he loads their backpack. Hey, here's something that you need to understand about following me. Here's another tool. Here's a practice to do together. And so what I kind of want to do today is just give you maybe two, three things to stick in our backpacks as we journey through this book together. Things that we will need to regularly refer to, keep in mind that will shape the way that we go through this book. And the first one that I want to say to you is this. Pay attention to where the book of Matthew is located in your Bible. You may be familiar with this or not, but you can even flip to the table of contents in your Bible or something like that if you want to. It is the first book of what we as Christians call the New Testament. It's first in that list, not necessarily because it was written first. As a matter of fact, we're pretty confident that several of Paul's letters were written before either of the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written. And, and even among those four Gospels that tell the story of the life of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, scholars continue to debate today which came first, not the chicken or the egg, but which was Matthew written first or was Mark written first? And again, that's a, that's a big debate. I don't know if the answer really matters all that much, but it's interesting to note that um, according to church tradition from, from very early on, from the beginning that Christians started to try to put together a list of these books that they, they began to recognize, these writings that they recognized were inspired by God in the same way that the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament were. From the beginning that, that, that um, Christians started putting those lists together, the book of Matthew has always been listed first. Not only that, early on in about the second century, this book took on the name Matthew because it was associated, the author was identified as the Apostle Matthew, the guy that we meet in the pages of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 9, as a guy sitting at a tax collecting booth because he was a tax collector. And Jesus comes up to him and says, come follow me. And Matthew leaves it all behind and comes and follows Jesus. The very next scene, they're having a big dinner together with a bunch of other tax collectors and sinners who are there too. It's not necessarily clear if Jesus invited Matthew and all his tax collecting friends over to where he was staying or if Matthew, almost like Zacchaeus, was like, come to my house. I want to throw a party in your, your honor. But either way, we know what happens in that scene if you're familiar with the story. Jesus is sitting with all those people who were seen as outcasts and almost like traitors by their people. And the religious leaders, the nice, clean, buttoned-up people, they see this going on, and they pull Jesus' disciples aside, and they say to him, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? I think they probably asked this question to the disciples instead of Jesus, because the disciples were probably easier to get to in the room. Jesus is in the the thick of it with these undesirable people, and I imagine the disciples were probably off to the side going... Jesus, what are we doing here? I didn't know that this is what it was going to be like to follow you. And so the Pharisees go, hey, what the heck is going on here? And Jesus overhears the question. You remember what he says? 
It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Now go, go and study this thing. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, because I did not come to call righteous people, or at least those who think that they're righteous in their own eyes. I came to call sinners. Now again, from very early on, within like a generation of the time the apostles were, were living, it was common to associate this gospel with that Matthew. Again, this is one of those things scholars like to debate about. And maybe at the end of the day, we can't know for sure if Matthew the apostle was the author of it. But I would say this to you, like I wanted you to be aware of that debate, just so that way if you get into commentaries and things like that as we go through this, you're not uh, surprised or, or put off guard by it. But at the end of the day, the more important question is not who wrote the book of Matthew, but who does Matthew write about in this book? Who is this Jesus that the author of this gospel presents to us? That's the point of what we're looking at. And again, like I said, I think it's really important to understand that from very early on in the history of the church, Christians have always put this one number one on the list, even though it wasn't written first. And that's because even the book of Matthew, among the other four gospels of Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew contains far more, many, many more Old Testament quotations and allusions than the other gospels. It seems that the author of Matthew, his whole point in putting this together is to show us in as many ways as possible that the story of Jesus is connected to the story of the Old Testament. That the book of Matthew kind of serves as this bridge between the Hebrew scriptures that Christians call the Old Testament and the New Testament. That that's the purpose why he's writing this. That, that, that not only is Jesus connected to the story of Israel in the Old Testament, he came to fulfill that story. The hope of Israel, the mission God gave to Israel, the promises that God made to the people of Israel. Matthew wants us to know Jesus is the one who makes those promises, brings them into reality. As we just sang a couple minutes ago in our song, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians where he says, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. How can Paul say that so confidently? Well, again, we look at the pages of Matthew and we see how much work he does to show us Jesus as the fulfillment of the story. We're going to see this. Here's one of the places we're going to focus. We're, we're really just going to look at the first verse of the book of Matthew today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 1. Here's the way that the, the author kicks off this story. He says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, next week, Todd's going to come back and he's getting into more detail on the genealogy that the author Matthew goes on and lists in that first part of chapter one. And it's important. It may not be the most um, uh, exhilarating read for us, just a list of names, but there's a lot of really important figures in that list. And not only that, that list of names is really important to Matthew's central argument. That Jesus is connected to and fulfills the story of the Old Testament. We see this through the three titles that Matthew used to identify Jesus right here in this first verse. What I want to do is I'm actually going to look at him in the reverse order that Matthew gives them. Um, because I think in some ways that puts it in the Old Testament order. And I think in a very uh, similar way, Matthew goes with the ones that would have the most current, like, boom, this would get people's attention and then works back to the ones that are older to sow Jesus in that connotation. But all that to say, let's start with the last one. 
When Jesus says, or when the, Matthew says that Jesus is the son of Abraham. This is important, not just because Abraham's an important Old Testament figure, but Matthew wants to make sure that we see Jesus as part of the story of Abraham because God made some really big promises to Abraham. You may be familiar with this or not. Again, we're going to see in some of this as we go through a lot of this Old Testament material in the book of Matthew. It's not meant to be off-putting to those of you who may be less familiar with the Old Testament. It's meant to be an invitation. Come learn this story. Come see the big picture of who Jesus is. Back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 is where we see God call this man named Abram, who later he extends his name to be Abraham. He tells him to leave his family, the place that he's known, and go to a land that God would show him because God was going to give him a land. And not only give him to a land, but look what he says there in verses 2 and 3. Here are the promises, the big, huge promises that God makes to Abram. He says, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Abraham, I have big plans for you. And if anyone sets themselves against you, they're getting in the way of man's plan and it's not going to work well for them. So therefore, I will bless whoever blesses you and I will curse those who curse you. Dishonor, those who dishonor you, I will curse. But then the big, huge grand finale of the promise comes at the end of verse 3. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's the big promise that God makes to Abraham. That's the mission that God says that he will accomplish through this family, this nation that he will build from the people of Abraham. Not just to bless them, but to bless all the families on the earth through them. That's good news, isn't it? The problem is, by the time we come to the first century, the time of Jesus, the family of Abraham has not brought blessing to all families on earth. I mean, definitely they had some really good moments. There were some incredible things that God did through them. There are ways in which people from other nations are drawn in to understand who this amazing creator God is through them. But as we read through the story of the Old Testament, we see that far more often the people of Israel, the family of Abraham, conducted themselves in ways that brought God's curse and judgment upon them, not blessing to the nations. But Matthew's point of starting his gospel by saying Jesus is the son of Abraham is to say the promises that God made to Abraham, they're not dead. The mission hasn't failed. As a matter of fact, Jesus is the one to make good on them. All families on earth can be blessed through Jesus. But only through Jesus. Which is why Matthew's gospel concludes with that great commission saying, okay, now Jesus has made a way through his death and resurrection for blessing and salvation and new life to be extended to all who believe. So go to the nations and let them know it. Bring the blessing of salvation and discipleship in this new way of life with Jesus to people who believe from every family on the earth. That's what Matthew means by saying that Jesus is the son of Abraham. The promise of blessing to all families comes through him. Does that make sense? Okay, let's look at the second one. First he says, Jesus is the son of Abraham. But then, or last, but then the second one he says is that he's the son of David. And again, this is important that he connects Jesus with the story of David, not just because David is a hero from the Old Testament, the shepherd boy who killed the giant and so forth. 
And not only because David was the greatest king in the history of Israel, but again, it's important because of the promises that God made to this David. Again, you may or may not be familiar with this, but David, taken from the sheep pen, being a shepherd, to, to be the shepherd over all God's people Israel, in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7, God says, I have even bigger plans than that for you and for your family. Look what he says. He speaks to the prophet Nathan. He says, go tell David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. That sounds similar to what God said to Abraham, right? The promise of a great name. But it gets even better. Look what he says down in verse 12. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie with your fathers, with, he says to David, in other words, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own children who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He says, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, when he sins, when he goes against me, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. These are big promises, huh? An eternal kingdom, an unending succession of sons who would rule as king. He even says that, David, your son and I will share like a father-son relationship. These are big, problem, or big promises, but again, the problem that we see by the time that we come to the book of Matthew is that at this point, it's been about 600 years since the last son of David sat on the throne. And even a lot of those sons of David, they weren't such great characters either. But again, it's been so long since the people of Israel have been self-ruled, let, let alone uh, having big empires rule over them, let alone having a, a king from the line of David sit on the throne, that by the time we come to the first century, there's a sense in which these promises that God made to David have kind of faded into the background. Yeah, a distant memory, maybe almost like a, a, a mythological thing, like maybe the way that British people think about King Arthur. Okay, uh, maybe, but it's just a really cool story to tell. And yet the fact that Matthew begins his gospel by saying, you want to know who this Jesus is? He's the son of David. He's saying those promises are not done. God will keep his word. And what he begins to show us as we go through this book is that Jesus is much more than just another son in the line of David. He is the greater son of David. He brings a different kind of kingdom. Yes, he rules, he reigns as king, but it's a surprising upside down kind of kingdom, especially as we'll see when, when we get to the Sermon on the Mountain, chapter 5. 
But even though Jesus' kingdom comes in surprising ways and comes in ways that those with power and authority in the world want to fight against, make no mistake, the kingdom that Jesus brings is the very kingdom, the very eternal kingdom that God promised to David a thousand years earlier. It is the very kingdom of God. Think about this one for a second. We saw, we saw here where it talks about how God says, I'll have like a father-son relationship with your son, David. Now, in the context, we know that this is referring at least first to Solomon, the son of David who rules in his place after him. Because we also see the way Solomon does some amazing things. He has this really cool relationship with God and then he turns his heart away from God and God does discipline him, but not take his love away from him. But then Jesus comes on the scene and he throws a whole new light on this whole father-son relationship thing, doesn't he? Not just like a son to the father. Jesus is the son of David, who even before he was the son of David for all of eternity, he has been the son of God. He is the eternal beloved son of the father. Who would have known in 2 Samuel 7 that God's promise of eternal king from the line of David who would be like a son to him would ultimately come to fulfillment when the eternal beloved son of God would be incarnated into humanity and born into the family of David. This is what we're going to see as we go through the book of Matthew. Not only the ways that Jesus fulfills promises in the Old Testament, but the way he expands them. He shines new light on them where you look back and go, whoa, only through Jesus can we see the bigger picture of what God was talking about. You ever seen that, you know, where it's like sometimes in, in stories and things like that, we can see a sense of foreshadowing. A character makes a statement that early on in the movie or whatever, like, oh, okay, whatever. And then later on you get to the climax of the movie and it's like, oh my gosh, that's totally in a new light. There's so many times where we see that like in the life of Jesus. You're going to see throughout this book, pay attention, especially in this first several chapters, there's a lot of times where Matthew's going to say, hey, this happened and it happened to fulfill what was written in the prophets. It's going to happen over and over again. He's showing us Jesus came not only to fulfill the story of Israel, but also fill it up, shine new light on it. That leads us to the third title that Matthew gives us here in chapter one. He calls Jesus Christ. Perhaps you've thought that was Jesus' last name. And if so, there's no shame in that. I mean, because it, it comes across that way. We almost use it that way. But Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title. Just like there's King David, there's Jesus the Christ. It's his title. The word means anointed one. It's, the same, it's in Greek the same as the Hebrew word Messiah, which you may have heard. The Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. The, the word Christ or Messiah occurs frequently in the Old Testament. And it refers literally to people who it means to be anointed with oil. Not just to make you smell good or make your hair nice and shiny, but to show that you've been appointed, you've been chosen for a specific role or office. Like in the book of 1 Samuel, when Samuel the prophet comes to the house of Jesse, he goes through all the big strap and handsome young men and then finally has to ask Jesse to send for his little scrawny young kid to come in from the pasture, and he says, that's the one, he anoints him with oil as the king of Israel. That's David, right? Or we read back in the book, in, in uh, the, the beginning of the Old Testament, uh, in the story of, of Israel, how, how Moses anoints his brother Aaron as the first high priest for the people of Israel. 
So again, this idea of an anointed one, a Messiah, we see it throughout the Old Testament. But something begins to happen to this idea of an anointed one, especially in the book of the Psalms and in the prophets that spoke from God to the people of Israel. They start to, again, load this idea of an anointed one, a Christ, a Messiah, with, with more meaning. And the people begin to be trained by the word of God to hope for and look for not just another anointed king or priest, but one who's much bigger. Not just a Messiah, but the Messiah. This one kingly, priestly figure whose reign would usher in a new age of righteousness and peace and glory and even judgment upon God's enemies. And again, this is a place where Matthew doesn't play his cards close to the chest. He doesn't leave us long to figure it out. From the very beginning, he says, you want to know who this Jesus is? You want to know who I believe Jesus is and who I'm writing to convince you that he is? He is the Christ. He is that Messiah kingly figure. He is the son of David to reign forever. He is the son of Abraham to bring blessing to all peoples on earth. All the promises of God, as Paul says and as we sing, find their yes in Jesus. That's why he is such a big deal. Now, again, even as I've been going through this this morning, maybe these promises are familiar to you. Maybe some of these Old Testament figures that I've talked about, guys like Abraham and, and David, are pretty familiar. But if they're not familiar to you, don't be discouraged by that. Don't be put off by it. If you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament story, the story that Matthew says Jesus came to fulfill and to fill up, well, understand that the reason why Matthew put this gospel together is to invite you into that story. And I want to encourage you to take his invitation. Dig into this story with us. If you want to understand who Jesus is and what he came to do, and especially if you want to take up Jesus' commission to help others know how to follow this Jesus, come learn with us how to view Jesus in light of the Old Testament, uh, Old Testament story. It's the story that Jesus came to fulfill. As we work through this book, pay attention to the Old Testament quotations and allusions, the people from the Old Testament that Matthew talks about. Seek them out. See any of these little Easter eggs that are meant to take you deeper into the story to see the significance of who Jesus is. And especially pay attention when Matthew says that something that Jesus did or something that happens in the story fulfills what the Old Testament was talking about. I said before, I want to pack our backpack with a few things to keep in mind. And let me throw two of them up here for you. Two essential skills. I put the third one up there as well. Two essential skills for our apprenticeship of learning to walk with Jesus. That the book of Matthew not only tells us that we need, but is actually written to train us to do is number one, to learn to see Jesus in light of the Old Testament. And then almost in that flip side of it, to learn to see the Old Testament in light of Jesus, in the new light, the fuller light that he brings. Those are two things to put in our backpack because our journey through this book is gonna give us multiple opportunities to learn and practice and develop these skills together. But that third one that I put up there, this idea of responding, that's really important. That's what I want to talk about in the last few minutes we have together. All of this learning, all of this Old Testament information that we're going to see as we go through the book of Matthew, it's not just an intellectual exercise. 
It's not just something to give us more information to fill our heads with Bible trivia so that we can just slay at those Bible trivia games that we played when we were kids. The story of Jesus, the story that the gospel of Matthew tells, calls for a response, demands a response from us. As we learn to see Jesus in light of that Old Testament story and vice versa, learn to see the Old Testament story in new light because of Jesus, we must learn to respond accordingly, appropriately, and ongoingly. The response of this gospel message is not just to that initial belief and repentance of following Jesus, but in this ongoing, as Jesus said at the Sermon on the Mount, Whoever hears his words and does them, puts them into practice, responds in obedience and trust, that's the wise man who built his house on the rock, right? As we work through the book of Matthew, not only does it call you to respond, I would say this, pay attention to how people respond to Jesus and his ministry throughout this gospel. Pay attention to how Jesus oftentimes will call people to respond. As we work through this gospel, pay attention. What kind of people respond positively to what Jesus is doing? Is it who you'd expect? Or even that story we talked about earlier from Matthew 9, where Jesus says, hey, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Is that meant to shape our understanding of who it is that responds and goes, I'm sick. I need a doctor. I need him. Who responds negatively to what Jesus is doing? And why? Why would they see, gosh, the beautifully wise teaching, the miraculous healings, the deliverance from demons, and choose to fight against that? Why would they do that? What did Jesus' ministry get in the way of what they wanted? How about this? What about the people that you'll see in this gospel who just kind of spectate? They just kind of watch. The crowds, if you will. They don't really respond overly negatively or positively. They're just kind of passive. Non-committal. I mean, they'll show up in droves to watch Jesus teach and heal. They'll probably clap and cheer when he raises the dead or heals a blind man. They'll say thank you when Jesus provides a miraculous meal for them. But something happens when Jesus looks at the crowds and says, come, follow me. Oh, gee, uh, look at the time, man. Gosh, I just... Sorry, Jesus. I, I mean, I had some other things I, got, I had on my list to do. You know, honeydew lists and all that. Like, you get it, right, Jesus? I got some stuff I got to do. But you know, how about this? We really loved getting to come and to hear you. Could you let us know the next time you're coming back through town? We would gladly come hear you again. How does Jesus respond throughout the gospel of Matthew to those who remain ambivalent to him? Again, I hinted at it a second ago. The way that Jesus finishes in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, whoever hears these words of mine and does them, he's like the wise man who built his house on the rock and it can withstand the storms and the floods of life. But the person who just hears and then goes, hmm, cool, what's for lunch? That's the foolish person. Builds his house on the sand. There's no foundation It can't endure the trials and strains of life in general in a broken world, let alone the trials that come with a committed life of discipleship to Jesus. 
And he says, great is the ruin of that house. As Jesus' ministry progressed, who did we see Jesus devote most of his time and energy to? To those who spectated? Or to those who rearranged their lives to make themselves available for this apprenticeship with Jesus? What does that teach you and I about how we should respond to the message of Jesus? I mean, just think for a second. Last week, we read through chapters one through four, and I just started listing out all the various responses that we see just even in that part we read last week. Think about this. How did Joseph respond when the angel explained to him how Mary, his betrothed, was suddenly pregnant? What would that have costed him to respond in the way that that the angel said? How did the Magi respond when they saw the star that somehow we don't even understand told them that the king of the Jews had been born? And then on the flip side, how do Herod and the chief priests and the religious leaders of the Jewish people respond when the Magi show up saying that their king has been born? When John the Baptist comes on the scene in chapter 3, how did he call people to respond to prepare themselves for their Christ, their Messiah? When Jesus is led into the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan, how did he respond to Satan's temptations? When he comes back on the scene and he begins his ministry and he announces that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, how did he call people to respond? Later on, when he's by the shore of the Sea of Galilee and he sees Peter and Andrew and James and John cleaning up after a night of fishing, and he says to them, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men, how did they respond? Again, Matthew 9, Matthew's just sitting there collecting taxes, keeping orderly accounts of everything, and Jesus says, hey, I got a different plan for you. How does he respond? Do you get what Matthew's doing with all of this repetition? He's calling us as his readers not just to see and observe this story, but to see ourselves in this story. And he's urging us to respond likewise. He says, see the wrong responses, See the ways that people responded to Jesus with ambivalence or even violence and opposition. Don't go that way. See the right responses, the the brokenness, the humility, the the turnabout, the the radical forgiveness that flows from people's hearts when they encounter the forgiveness of Jesus. Go that way. Because as Jesus again says in the Sermon on the Mount, the gate is wide and easy is the path that leads to destruction. And there are many who travel on it. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it, Jesus says, are few. So Matthew constructs this gospel over and over again to help us see that's the way of destruction. This is the way of life. Don't miss it because it is missable to many. It is undesirable to most. But again, for those who God gives eyes to see, this way of Jesus, it's that treasure in the field that Jesus talked about that's worth giving up everything that you have so you can have this Who do you say that Jesus is? That's one of the big themes we'll see in this story. There's an important turning point that we come to in Matthew chapter six, or chapter 16, where Jesus looks at his disciples halfway or so through their apprenticeship, their discipleship process with him. 
They've already rearranged their lives to follow him. And he says, okay, what have you learned thus far? And he starts off by asking them what other people are saying about him. Do you remember this? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? A title used, that Jesus used to refer to himself. And they said, yeah, some say John the Baptist because he already died, but they think you're him come back to life. Others say Elijah because Malachi in the Old Testament talks somehow about Elijah coming back. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And they says, okay, cool, awesome. Yeah, good. You've been listening to what people are saying. Who do you say that I am? Now, again, in the context of this passage, Jesus is clearly talking with his 12 apostles with him there in Caesarea Philippi. But I really think this is one of those places where we're meant to see ourselves in this story. Because the two questions that Jesus asks here are just as relevant and essential for us to answer as they were for Peter and the guys to answer. Who do people say that Jesus is? I mean, obviously, we see right after this in verse 16, Simon Peter goes, you're the Christ. You're that Messiah. You're the son of the living God. That's who Peter says Jesus is. We've already seen who Matthew says that Jesus is. He's the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Who do you say that Jesus is? And how should your answer to that question shape the way that you live in response? Maybe the reality is that you're not ready to answer that question today. The most honest answer to who do you say Jesus is would be, I don't know who he is. And if so, that's, that's okay. That's a great, honest place to start as we begin going through this book. Hopefully there will be many more opportunities for you to learn who this Jesus is and what it means to follow him. But the question I want to ask you this. If you're not ready to answer the question who Jesus is, are you willing to give that question serious consideration beginning today? Not just to kick the question down the road till later. Maybe until you get older or you finish having some of the fun that you want to have and then later on you'll get serious about these things. Don't put it off. Who do you say that Jesus is? If you don't know the answer to that question, honestly and sincerely, today is the day to start that journey. The book of Matthew has been written to you to invite you into that story. Dive into this with us. Find out for yourself who this Jesus is. But even as I encourage you to find out for yourself who Jesus is, that doesn't mean you have to do this by yourself. Come, join us. As we, a group of people here in Simi Valley, apprentices learning from this Jesus what it means to trust him and walk with him and become like him and help others to do the same. Come join us in this. If you're here and you are already a follower of Jesus, that doesn't mean, okay, cool, I responded. Check that box, we're good. What's for lunch? The response the gospel calls us for is not just that call of initial belief or conversion, as essential as that is. The call this gospel calls us to make is to continue to follow this Jesus. As Jesus says in Matthew 11, to take his yoke upon ourselves and learn from him. As he says shortly after this in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him what? What does he say? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. 
If you think that Jesus is a way of getting your best life now, you have not read the Gospel of Matthew or any other biblical Gospels. And yet, Jesus says, whoever would try to just save his life on his own terms will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake or the gospel's sake will find it forever. This is the way of life. Jesus calls us not just to hear his words, but to put them into practice. Not only to follow him, but to trust him to make us fishers of men. Those who can walk with and disciple others. In short... The response that the the gospel of Matthew calls us to is this idea of a lifelong apprenticeship with Jesus. That's why I'm so excited to go through this book together with you. Because Jesus' plan to bring blessing to the world in fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham is a global mission of local personal discipleship. That's what we're called to. Let me give you two last things as I bring this to a close. First, as we continue through this book, I want to encourage you, don't just come here, me or Todd or whoever else, come and talk about this book. Make a practice of regularly reading through this for yourself. You may already have a personal practice of Bible reading, um, or if not, I would definitely encourage you to, to start one. I'd love to talk with you about that. But I say, whatever it is, add this to it. Add the, read, the regular, repeated reading of the book of Matthew to it. It's 28 chapters in this gospel, which means if you read one chapter a day, you'll get through this book in a month. And then you could do it again. And then you could do it again and again. And through that repeated, careful reading, this is how we learn to observe and begin to practice so that we can pass on to one another all that Jesus has commanded. Make a practice of this. And second, I would say, as you read, keep in mind that definition of disciple that we've been using here at Cornerstone. That a disciple is a follower of Jesus who's seeking to learn from him, trust him, become like him, and help others do the same. Because what we're going to do, we actually got these cool, cool little cards that Kim put together that are at the info table in the back. I'd encourage you to grab one of these, stick it in your Bible as a bookmark. It's got some discussion questions that are really just meant to help us put these things into practice. So what you'll see each week as we go through this book, and even as you read through it on your own, these same four questions. What in these verses, what can I learn from Jesus in this part of the book of Matthew? Not only that, how does this book of, part of the book of Matthew call me to trust Jesus or help me to see the trustworthiness of Jesus? What do I see in here of the attributes, the character of Jesus? And how does this call me to become like him? And then lastly, what are some practical ways from what I see in the model, the example, the words of Jesus right here in the book of Matthew that I can now use to help others to learn from trust and follow Jesus. This is the journey that we're gonna go on. Take some time to be praying through those, journal those questions in community groups. Feel free to make these part of your discussion as we work your way through these books. But what I wanna do now, we're gonna invite the band back up. We're gonna sing one more song in response to this call to follow Jesus. We're gonna see a couple people go through baptism. Uh, We're not done yet this morning, so we're super excited to get to share these other really important practices together. But as Billy and the team come up, Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you so much for a book like Matthew that both tells us who you are and trains us through that to become like you and help others do the same. Lord, would you make us faithful learners? I pray for those in here who are examining, investigating, trying to figure out who you are. 
I think about what you told Peter when he declared his belief that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You said that he was blessed because he hadn't figured this out on his own, but your father in heaven had revealed it to him. I pray even today, even this week, as we open your word, as we seek to put it into practice in our lives, would you reveal your glory to us? Even to those of us who do not know you yet, that we might see you as that treasure in the field that's worth giving up all for. Lord, would you guide us as we seek to walk with you? We pray this in your name. Amen.